Who do you say that I am? Let us pray. God of revelation, mere flesh and blood cannot reveal divine truth. Only your spirit can give us that gift. Be in my breath and voice, be in our ears and our understanding, that through these words, your word may be known. Amen. If you were here last week, you heard Marty do an excellent job wrestling with a difficult text that tops the list of tough sayings of Jesus, that story where Jesus calls that Canaanite woman a dog, and that woman begs Jesus for crumbs from the table of God's mercy. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, we'll talk to Marty. <laughs> She'll answer all your questions. You may also have heard her confess last week that she was originally going to preach this Sunday on this text. But Thursday last week, at the last minute, we decided to switch Sundays, leaving her stuck with that sticky passage and me with this text. And after wrestling all week with this text, I've decided I want to switch back. Um, give me the story of Jesus telling, calling the woman a dog any day over this text. It seems like a pretty benign text, but it is a text filled with so many things. Too much for any one sermon, maybe even a month of sermons to deal with. This text is my penance for throwing that other text upon you, Marty. Because there's so much here, and there's not just what's in the text, but there is so much baggage that we bring to this text. And I've struggled with what to say. It's almost impossible to read these words from Jesus and avoid the baggage of centuries of Christian debate over the identity of Jesus. It's one thing to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. All Christians pretty much agree on that one. But it's another thing when we start talking about what we mean when we say that confession. When we start explaining what Messiah is and what son of God really means. And we start trying to figure out all the details about Jesus, about how the virgin birth was possible. And how did he walk on water? And did he really walk on water? And did he really bodily raised from the dead by the time we're done parsing all the details of the life of Jesus no one agrees about anything anymore there was a time in the early church when they were deeply divided over this question the question Jesus asked of his disciples now they all agreed with Peter's answer you are the Christ the son of the living God they just didn't agree on what that meant one group believed that Jesus, being the Son of God, meant that he was, well, fully God. One with God, eternal, just like God. If there always was God, then there always was Jesus, for they were the same. Another group was led by a priest named Arius. And Arius believed that Jesus was great, but not fully God. Jesus was God's first creation, the very first thing God ever made out of nothing but not the same as God, not eternal with God. There was a time when there wasn't Jesus. That's what Arius taught. And the debate got crazy. Churches divided. They were about to go into war against each other. And Emperor Constantine, the Roman emperor, called all the church together 
to the city of Nicaea. They needed to work this out. And in meetings that lasted several years, tensions were great. They debated, they parsed, they argued. Tensions got so high at one point that one bishop, at least as the legend says, one bishop known as St. Nicholas, yes, that St. Nicholas, punched Arius in the face as they were arguing about the identity of Jesus. Now, I don't care if you're St. Nicholas Jolly, old St. Nicholas himself, if you punch someone in the face over their belief of Jesus, you've probably missed the point that Jesus is trying to make. But the division doesn't stop there. This text, if you keep reading, has become a dividing point between Catholics and Protestants, the non-Catholic Christians. For centuries, we've argued over what Jesus means when he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom and says, on this rock, I will build my church. Does that mean that Peter is the first pope? Catholic teaching says that it is. And throughout the centuries, those spiritual keys have been handed down from pope to pope to pope all the way from then until now. We Protestants, we have a hard time figuring out exactly what's going on between Jesus and Peter, but we're pretty sure that Peter's not the first pope. Now, all that, that's historical baggage. And I can deal with that. I like history, and I can talk about what they believed back then. That's not what troubles me with this text. The baggage that weighs me down is, well, my own baggage. That's why this text is hard to speak on this morning. As I've said before, and probably too much, I've come from a Christian tradition that was all about getting things right, the right answers. The Christian life was a test. And if you failed the test, the gates of Hades would be opened unto you. So when anyone, even Jesus, asked me what I believe, I start to sweat. I'd much, I'd much rather that first question Jesus asked. Who do people say that I am? Now that I can deal with. When the disciples are asked that question, you can't stop them from talking. They all just start chiming in. Oh, oh some, some think you're the resurrected John the Baptist. A few chapters ago, remember he was killed by Herod, but, but he's come back to life and he's you. Well, someone the other day I heard thought that you were Elijah, that great prophet who has come back to usher in the last days. Oh, oh, well, I heard they were saying you were Jeremiah. Oh, oh, no, no, Isaiah. Oh, oh, no, one of the other prophets. They can't stop talking. And I, I can talk all day about what other people think about Jesus. Well, well, you know, the Catholics believe this, and the Baptists believe that, and if you're Muslim, you believe this, and if you're Jewish, you believe that, and my church growing up said this about Jesus all day. But then Jesus asked another question. He turns the question on them, on us, on me. Who do you say that I am? Silence. Now, I wish we knew how long that silence was before Peter eventually speaks. Seconds, minutes, I'm sure it felt like hours. Peter eventually speaks. More often than not, he's the first one out of the gate, always speaking for good or for bad. 
And I don't know if he answers enthusiastically, confidently, timidly, but he answers. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus praises him. Yes, Simon, Simon, yes, blessed are you for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And who are you? Who are you, Simon? Well, you are Peter. Peter, that means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. A triumphant moment for Peter. And all he did was make this simple confession. I don't know why I sweat so much when asked the question, because it doesn't seem that difficult. It's much simpler than we make it out to be. Jesus doesn't ask Peter to parse his terms, as we will see next week. What Peter doesn't even know, uh, that Peter doesn't even know what he's saying. He doesn't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. But that, that doesn't matter. All Jesus says is, yes, blessed are you. That's right. That's who I am. Maybe we don't have to have it all figured out. Maybe we don't have to deal with all the baggage and work out all the theological questions about who Jesus is and what it means when we say that Jesus is the Son of God. So if it's that simple, then why does the question still make me sweat? Who do you say that I am? That's a vulnerable question. Because the question is not really, well, it's not even about Jesus, is it? It's a question about me. Who do I say you are? What do I believe is most important in my life? On what will I wager my life? And how will my life change in response to the answer to this question? That's the baggage that makes me want to avoid this text. And maybe that's why we use this text as a weapon in our theological arguments, as fodder for disagreement and disunity. That's a lot more fun and easier than being vulnerable before Christ. The text gets personal. It asks me the question. It demands something of me. Because if I say that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God, then everything changes. Then I must become something new. Simon will never be Simon again, but Simon will be Peter, a rock. And who will I become? What will I do? Where will I go from there to make this great confession demands that where Jesus leads, we follow? And are we willing to risk that? If you're into science fiction movies, it's that scene from The Matrix where Morpheus gives Neo that choice between the two pills. This is your last chance, he says to Neo. After this, there is no turning back. You swallow the blue pill, you wake up in bed and, and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red, pool, the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Or if sci-fi is not your thing, it's that moment in Les Miserables when the old priest, you remember that priest who Jean Valjean had stolen the candlesticks from, the silver candlesticks. And Jean Valjean gets caught and confronted with the authorities before the priest. And the priest says, yeah, yeah, I, I gave those to him. 
Those are his. And in that moment, his life is forever changed. Everything is different. It must. He can't help it. It's, it's that first time you hold, hold your child and, and you look at their face and you know. <laughs> I told someone yesterday, I'm a weeping preacher. You may not know that yet, <laughs> but you will. But you hold your child and, and all the fear and doubt and vulnerabilities right there on their face. And you realize that nothing will ever be the same again. And there's nothing you can do to change that, right? Your life is different. And you cry tears of joy in spite of it all. To confess that Jesus is the Christ is to begin a journey, a journey that you don't know where it's headed, but a journey that leads right wherever Jesus goes, right through the joys and the pains of being human, takes you right to the cross. But through the cross, to the moment of resurrection, it's not about getting it right. It's not about always standing straight and walking in the right steps, having the right answers, understanding everything. It's a journey, and you make mistakes, and you learn, but what's important is that you enter that journey. That's the invitation that Jesus is asking of Peter. Not to lay out every belief and answer every question about who God is and who Jesus is, but to follow and see where Jesus will lead. In a moment, we'll sing two verses from the old hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord. A good hymn for this text. And I wonder, what does a church look like that is built upon the foundation of this confession? What does it look like? A church that believes that Jesus is the Christ. Well, I imagine it looks a lot like Jesus looks. It's not a church that's trying to get everything right, but it's a church that hangs out with the people Jesus hangs out with. A church that offers forgiveness like Jesus offers forgiveness. A church that eats meals with everyone, even those they're not supposed to eat with. It would be a church that binds people in the grace and mercy of God and looses the binds of law and hate and violence. A church that is willing to take a risk, to take the risk to follow after Jesus, knowing that nothing will ever be the same again. When a church takes seriously, when we take seriously the confession of Christ, then everything must change. Who do you say that I am? Well, maybe silence is the best response to that question. For if Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, whatever that may mean, it means that we must lay down all the baggage that we carry and hold on tight as we follow Christ into the journey of a lifetime. Let us sing number 272, verses 1 and 2.